Welcome to Two Pint PLC. My name is Lawrence Woodruff, and I have two degrees from ISU. And I'm Michael Ralph, and I've been teaching for eight years in a high school classroom. Professional discussions should not be restricted to the workday. Please join our professional yet casual dialogue. So grab a seat, grab a glass, and join us. We will discuss that we might improve. Today we are drinking Dragon's Milk from New Holland Brewing. A Dragon's Milk is a stout, a bourbon barrel aged stout. If 1554 was chosen in episode one for my benefit, Dragon's Milk was chosen for your benefit. Uh, and it benefits me greatly. Uh, I enjoy this uh, very much, and uh, we'll discuss it more at the end of the episode. What do you know? This episode is about constructivism and schema development, and so uh, we have to, as we place import on this podcast, discuss research relevant to those topics. So what is our article of the day? Last episode, we talked about a, a, a popular publication in a news um, source that was intended for the general public, but it's a priority of mine and it's a priority of ours and it's a priority of the show that we talk about primary literature a lot because if we are professionals, we're going to be in tune with the state of the research in our profession. And we use the idea of schema development a lot in our teaching philosophy. That's a thing that is a cornerstone of both of our educational philosophies. So this is a review uh, of the historical perspective on schema development from a neuroscientific perspective. Man, I gotta tell you, I was so excited to be reading this article. If you're gonna go read something that we cite here, pick this one, because it's so good. Constructivist learning theory was a really important cornerstone of my teacher education uh, uh, program, and I read a lot of constructivist articles uh, about how individuals learn and so coming back to this uh you know six years later after my program was really a refreshing taste of clean crisp water going back and identifying these things that i recognized and some things that i had forgotten it was a very satisfying read and so yes this is a highly recommended read for anyone in the teaching profession and what's important i think to reference here is their perspective comes from one of neuroscience because we can't teach without teaching in response to brain structure and brain physiology and brain function. We Students learn with their brains, period. So we have to be responsive to how their brains process information, how their brains retrieve information, how their brains encode new information and accommodate discrepant events. And so it's important to, to include in our perspective the functioning of the brain, which is particularly convenient for you and me as biologists and scientists by background, but it's something that's important for all education professionals because we work with brains. So this uh, research comes at it from a perspective of brain physiology and brain structure, which I think is important for every teacher in K. Furthermore, um, theories uh, exist uh, to explain uh, some phenomena of nature. And uh, so this constructivist learning theory has existed since the early 1900s, but th the development of the brain structures and brain research is, is more complex and is more recently developed. When those things uh, 
those new findings about the brain support what we already know. It just strengthens the value of that theory. So constructivist learning theory becomes more important and is more robustly supported as we learn these new things about the brain, which just re-supports the idea of how important constructivism is in a classroom. And not just re-supports, but I know this was disruptive to my own teaching during the course of the last eight years, and if we're doing it right, is going to do it again in the future. As we learn more about the way information is processed, our teaching practices can change to better support the way that it happens in a living specimen. We don't have a choice to go around those pathways, so we can change what we do to better support the things that we learn as imaging technology improves, as our ability to understand neuronal behaviors improve, the way we understand the interactions between different networks within the brain. Uh, so with that, what is a schema? Uh, that is actually... I would say the top goal of this article was defining it. There has been robust neurological and psychological publications using the word schema, but they, in different disciplines and in different investigations, those words were not always used uh, uh, with harmony with each other. And so this paper uh, set out to uh, synthesize all of these ideas from all of these different sources to create a streamlined definition. And this is what they came up with. A schema contains an associative network structure, are based on multiple episodes, lack unit detail, and are adaptable. So what do each of those mean? Yeah. Does it mean that they contain an associative network structure? Uh, yeah, let's start with the first one. Associative networks means that it's not just a bunch of nodes of singular ideas existing within uh, a student brain, which is actually an important distinction to make because it can be very tempting, especially for somebody with a well-developed schema, to march through a particular idea. I know what cells are, so cells have a nucleus. We will do a day of nucleus. Cells have mitochondria. We'll do a day of mitochondria, and we will progress through those things uh, with our heads down and chugging along and when we get done we have these discrete ideas but without the interconnections we are not building a schema the relationships between those ideas is necessarily a part of their understanding relationships and connections between ideas is the understanding if schemas are a word used to describe what someone understands then linking ideas together is a critical and non-negotiable part of that understanding. And a thing known in isolation is not a thing understood. I, uh, I, I thought of this analogy as we were prepping for this episode as I think about um, a house within a city. So if Kansas City is an idea, when I say Kansas City things come to mind depending on how much you know about our region you think of barbecue you think of missouri and kansas dichotomy you think of you think of all of these ideas that come to mind but if i take one house out of kansas city and plop it somewhere else that house is not without meaning or value that house has some attributes that are still uniquely its but it loses so many things when it's not connected to the rest of kansas city as an idea the roads the people the culture the 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 weather the the particular quirks and how it interacts with the other houses that were in its proximity and so all of that additional meaning that make it a part of kansas city are lost when it's removed from that context. So those connections are ne necessarily a part of an idea of Kansas City if Kansas City is the schema. 
And even that house moved in isolation is an idea that is a relationship between the ideas of roof and wall and window and door and potential habitation. All of these things come together to give us that node of house. So the connections between ideas need, they must exist for something to be understood. Basis on multiple episodes. Uh, this one is interesting because this one is one that um, that is a little contentious and at odds with the idea of a calendar. So necessarily requires multiple exposures. Help me understand why that's a part of this. Well, one of the things that they propose about schema is that they're, our brains develop them to help us choose and predict behaviors. And so if our brains are trying to predict behaviors that are good for us, those behaviors have to have a return on investment. They have to have a, a value. And so when you encounter a situation multiple times, the brain says, okay, thinking about this situation is something that I need to do because it's gonna help me predict what I'm gonna do in the future. So when we, our brain experiences something in multiple episodes, it increases the importance of understanding that experience and predicting how I'm gonna to respond to that experience. So encountering something once is something the brain can dismiss. It doesn't necessarily need to invest itself to build a schema for that single encounter. But when things are encountered multiple times, their importance increases and the brain starts to invest in identifying relationships so that it can connect that experience to what we already know. And this blends pretty fluidly with the next item on this list, lack of unit detail, because students, if we present them with one experience, they experience that linearly because of the nature of time. So they, that has a beginning and it has an end. And so if we're going to generalize beyond the specific characteristics of any single event and any single problem and get to the commonalities between that problem and the many other problems, we also want them to be prepared to... Uh, encounter and solve, then they've got to have multiple instances so they can prune away the extraneous details, the things that are not uh, a critical part of this schema, and they can identify the recurring themes and the recurring connections between those problems so they can identify these are the core components of this idea and their connections are important and they are central part of my schema versus the ancillary details that exist on the fringes. They're the satellite examples that might pop up again, but are less fundamental to my understanding of this idea. And that cannot happen without multiple exposures. So what I think is an important distinction here is that multiple exposures doesn't mean do 10 problems. Because if they are 10 of the same problem, you are not achieving the goal of multiple exposures because they are still trucking from beginning to end through an established linear trajectory. I compare it to, I struggle with geographical navigation as a person. That's a thing that I still have a very nascent schema in. And so if I go from my house to your house, I have a route I can take to get there. I can go from here, I take a left, I take a right, I go straight, I take a left, I'm there. But there are seven other ways to get there that are all not unreasonable choices. I know none of them because I just take that same route every time. So the multiple exposures need to be sufficiently novel to highlight the commonalities and to prune away the details. So what does that mean for lack unit detail? 
what that means is someone has an experience and maybe the brain attempts to catalog all of the specifics of that experience for instance I have learned to drive I learned to drive on a mercury tracer wagon uh, way back when when I was 16 uh, it was an automatic transmission I don't drive a mercury tracer wagon today I drive a Ford Focus today the details are different the interface between me and the car are different where the knobs are are different but I can apply many of the many of the uh, associations that I developed in that mercury tracer to my current uh, situation so the car doesn't have to be the same I can apply some of the components from the prior experience to the new experience and that is uh, in in education we like to call that transference I've learned this skill or this understanding and now I can apply it to a new situation that only happens when we have robust schemas that lack unit detail so that we can decide which parts of this will apply to the new situation which means as Mr. Ralph suggested we need to have multiple episodes that are sufficiently different from each other so that we can practice that application which brings us to the fourth category uh, or quality of schemas they are adaptable and this is critically important because if they were not adaptable all education would be a waste of time yeah who cares why bother students come to the classroom with a worldview the idea that they are blank slates is not correct they have built relationships and nodes between ideas and have built an understanding and it is our job to nurture grow and develop that understanding like uh, rose bushes they are going to grow and we do need to help guide the pruning of those of some of those nodes and help other nodes flourish to uh, develop an appropriate uh, understanding of the world around them the adaptability justifies our job This discussion, this delineation between assimilation and accommodation of schema is critically important. There has been discussion, publications about schema before 1952, but I would argue the birth of constructivism is Piaget's publication in 1952, which identifies the adaptability of schemas through assimilation and accommodation. When the new information fits with what we know and fits with our schema, we can easily assimilate it but our job is really to deal with the complexities of accommodation accommodation is when the new information conflicts with our current schema and that means the individual must change their schema before the new information can be accepted and this puts the individual in a state of disequilibrium we are at our best when we're highlighting particular details that are also going to necessitate reconsideration of other nodes in their existing understandings and beliefs. It's going to reinforce their experience of this new information and it's going to activate more parts of their schema than if we were just saying here's a thing that's brand new that you don't know. Both because that's rarely true and because it's the less efficient of the two choices. This brings us back to the importance of a teacher's sensitivity to disequilibrium. When a student encounters an idea that conflicts with what they already know, there are essentially two ways out. One is that 
the discomfort of that is so great that the student opts out of resolving that disequilibrium. The student makes the choice or the student uh, maybe just feels their way through the situation and determines that this stuff is weird, I can't understand it, or it's it's different, it's 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 not important because it violates what I already know, so I'm just gonna, going to be done. It looks like cheating, it looks like um, seeking what's the answer behavior, it looks like accepting, just, just give, just just not turning in. Take a zero. I don't, I don't, whatever. This is stupid. Giving up disengagement. Yeah. Uh, so not engaging with the, the material. Now, if supported in a safe environment where struggle through disequilibrium is supported, then the individual exhibits a different set of behaviors. They ask questions. They talk about it. They try to investigate. They uh, they may search things individually, independently on their own because we've all had those encounters where a student was so engaged in something that they wanted to go figure it out and they would come back to you the next day and say, hey, I looked up this thing, blah, 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 and I, we're proud of them. They're proud of themselves. They struggled through that point of disequilibrium to reach the holy grail accommodation they have changed and improved their schema through commitment to that struggle so one of the things that i like to say in my classroom is struggle well and the reason why i say that is because i'm really targeting how a student responds to disequilibrium yes it is challenging yes it is difficult and if you opt out of struggling through that disequilibrium you will not improve your your schema will not change but if you commit to that uh, your schema will improve and it will change and so it is our job to foster an environment that promotes their struggle with their own schema development and what's important coming back to the neuroscience perspective of this review is that our brains are built to do that. So it feels bad to not know something, but it feels amazing to know things. It feels so good to succeed at problems or to have knowledge or to feel yourself getting better. It's fundamentally built to release the neurotransmitters that produce pleasure. It is literally built that way. So if we can commit to establishing a system of growing student competency is a word I'm gonna use, the ability to know things and do things. If we can build a system where our practice is productive and their struggle is worthy and yields an increase in competency, that feels really good. I wish this was a, a TV show because the thing that we do in my classroom is they don't most of my students have not had anatomy but they know whenever they do something well I get it from our anatomy teacher I do this and none of you can see what I'm doing right now because this is a radio show <laughs> but this little this little hand motion is it dopamine dopamine squirt and it feels good and so it's a little thing every time somebody does something well like oh boop and they do the little thing mm. above their head dopamine release Successful accommodation is motivating. So if you have a classroom that allows students to uh, proceed with um, disengagement behaviors, and that's a little more complex, 
complicated than not paying attention. That is, uh, finding behaviors to get a grade without engaging in the material. And every listener who's a teacher knows exactly what we're talking about. There are ways to game the system and get grades without actually understanding the material. Students that seek that path are not experiencing the reward for successful assimilation. I think I'm going to disagree with that. I'm going to disagree with that because what this boils down to, and I said it earlier, was this is not optional for teachers. The brain does work this way. So students get better at the things they do. So if a student is consistently disengaging in a classroom and experiencing successful grade incentives and successful praise incentives, they're going to keep doing that. And they're going to get remarkably good at whatever it is they're doing to escape that system, whether it be massaging an ego or cheating off of a friend or just asking for an answer. They're going to get really good at that. And there are plenty of um, of names that we use as teachers for those students who only seek points. And that's also its own episode. But we have plenty of terms for that because we see that. Students who have gotten really competent at escaping the structures we have to encourage growth, they are getting really competent in escapism. And that also feels good. We can't get away from their growth. The only question is, what are they going to get good at? So that brings us to the point of this podcast. We are looking for the shoulds. So if students have a, a set of if some students have a set of behavior that allows them to be successful in the classroom without uh, accommodating the material, and uh, we know that schema development is how students come to understand things, and we know that involves um, interconnection between ideas, we know that it involves multiple episodes, we know that it involves transference between episodes, and we know that schemas are adaptable. If these are the things we know from our robust research base, what should we do in the classroom? If our job as teachers is to build robust schemas in our students, then we have to identify the schemas we want our students to possess and make it our priority the end. And what I mean by that is it has to be the only thing that is our priority. A student doesn't want to do something else. I don't care. as long, If they're working on understanding this schema, that's desirable. We talked about it last week, but they still don't know it. Fine. We're doing it again this week. If they did this experiment, but they still have some misunderstandings on the application, we're doing another experiment. Because my priority to the ends of the earth, and that's directly at odds with what a lot of us have to experience in our classroom from our administration and from some of our department leads and from some of our coordinators. That is something that is really challenging to implement for a lot of teachers in the field right now. Many teachers, and this is completely natural, feel that in order for their students to understand something, they just need it explained really well. And when a teacher goes through explaining something really well, what they're actually doing is uh, dancing their way through their own schema. And the problem with that is that that is not how students develop their schema. Hearing someone else's schema is not sufficient to help students develop their own schema. Uh, 
They need to have multiple episodes with those ideas. They need to be able to create links between those ideas and what they know. And oftentimes, teachers are satisfied with showing the students the links in their own schema and then stop there. I painted such a beautiful picture on the whiteboard over the course of these past 90 minutes. How can anybody not stand back and marvel at the beauty and the elegance of all of these connections that I have placed on the whiteboard? There's an excellent story about that from Peter Brown in Make It Stick that I think is compelling. We reference the mitochondria lecture a lot, which is from that book, because it feels so compelling to the person doing the retrieval, doing the person putting the information up on the board, that it is really difficult to empathize with anyone who can't accommodate all of that information in their own schema. How can anyone not see the beautiful connections because I have so eloquently laid them out for somebody else? Instead of looking at history as a linear set of events for my students, I might instead attempt to develop the concept or the schema of classism. What is the ideas critical to classism? How, what are the relationships within classism? Where is the agency within classism? How do classes work as a social structure? And then they can, over multiple episodes with multiple experiences, explore and discuss classism in one time period, and then explore and discuss classes in another time period, and then explore and discuss and compare and contrast and create relationships about classes in a third time period or location. Through those multiple episodes, they are developing connections about the idea of class that can be applied to new situations, which then brings us to having all four components of that schema development. They are building connections between nodes, they are being able to apply it to multiple circumstances. Those, Because each circumstance is applicable to different situations, there's a lack of unit detail, and they can change their uh, schema in response to new information. Let's talk about elementary education. If we're going to talk about imagery, imagery is something that children can understand, I think. So if we're going to color this picture as though it is happy, and they're going to make color choices, and they're going to do things that illustrate it to be a happy picture. And then we're going to do color this picture as though it is sad, and they're going to color this picture in a certain way. Color this picture as though it is surprising, and they're going to do that particular thing. That is a good preparation for in maybe the next year, they're going to experience color this picture in an emotion that is inconsistent with what's happening. And so they can start to experience juxtaposition later because they have the experiences of imagery early on. So even those nascent emotions, the idea of connecting particular thematic components with particular emotions in artistic work, that can prepare them to do then more surprising things that have their own meanings later on. And that can even be relevant in the secondary, in the secondary artistic exploits. Use a minor key in a setting in a particular production that is usually very upbeat and happy. Yeah, that happened in our high school when there was a Wizard of Oz production that used minor key to evoke some particularly resonant emotions at a surprising time, and I still remember it. I just want to add that that performance was amazing. Uh, our director, uh, Mr. Schaefer, 
Eddie. Yeah. Uh, Eddie Schaefer gave his students uh, an incredible opportunity to develop their own schemas regarding... Um, regarding production in a theatrical environment. Yeah, student agency, look at that. Yes, he charged them with reimagining different scenes and components of the performance. Uh, they did some parts of the show in the classic traditional fashion of The Wizard of Oz, just like you would imagine from any production. But other parts of the show, students were encouraged demanded, it was actually a requirement upon them, to reimagine different areas. And they did. They reimagined the entire scene of uh, Munchkinland in a steampunk setting with a uh, hip-hop uh, production with uh, some new costumes, uh, new environment, and it was, I felt, uh, very engaging. Seeing something so new created by students uh, made me very, very proud as a teacher uh, associated with this school. Yeah, they were visibly taking a risk. It looked like something that was a lot different and unexpected and practiced and prepared and invested in and worth the time spent. Schema development is really complex. And though we, as sort of in this podcast, have established the importance of schema development, addressing everything that someone should do in the goal to promote schema development is not achievable within one episode. So we're going to come back to schema development and things that we should do to development over many episodes. You will hear this idea again. Now we do other stuff. During my education, I had a moment that was just a moment of glorious beauty for me, where this these mini ideas, where I was able to create a link between two separate schema. And when I did so, I just felt such affirmation, such a dopamine release in my brain that it has been a formative uh, component of my experience. And I'd like to share that with, with our listeners. I read an article uh, during my uh, master's program about the generative learning model, which is uh, published in 1974 by Merlin Wittrock. And it is essentially uh, a, it, it's, it, it was referenced in this article, the, the, uh, the neuroscience uh, article about schema development. And it is about, uh, as teachers, as learners, what is happening that we can do to promote accommodation and assimilation in our students uh, in light of Piaget's work and the work of prior uh, education psychologists. It was, it was a little more applicable, what is happening in the mind of the learner. And it talked about new information either being consistent with the learner's schema so that it can be assimilated or different from the learner's schema so that it is either rejected or struggled with so that it can be accommodated. At the same time, I was studying uh, a social science. I was studying the nature of science. Science being a human philosophical discipline to answer the question, how does reality work? How does the universe work? And studying these two things separately, I was never prompted by, by anyone that there was a connection between them. So when I discovered that connection, I just there was a wellspring of joy and happiness and beauty and art because I developed competency in my schema and I just had to rejoice and celebrate. And it's not just science. 
it's any idea, it's any mechanism of explanation for the nodes within our common knowledge. I, I think if we're history teachers, we can talk about the Civil War and our understanding of the nature of humanity reaches a tipping point where we are no longer satisfied with this dis disequilibrium in the explanation of humanity. I think there are plenty of instances where there's an idea that finally reaches a tipping point and we can discuss the nature of uh, our common experience in wrestling with that idea. And there are plenty of those instances now. There are plenty of those examples here where we reach some new idea, some new synthesis, push out into a frontier. Uh, I love 3D printing. I love CNC operations. And so we see this idea that 3D printing has reached a situation where we can. If that's really the new idea. We can do that. We as a population can be in that space. And so now we're reaching out into milling and laser work and CNC for everyone. And what can we do? I saw somebody print with coffee stains a year ago, which was put my brains all over the walls. Not because it's any different, because it isn't any different. It is consistent within our current schema, and it is just finding novel ways to express that understanding. And so, as a population, we say there's a new thing we think. Do we accept or reject it? And then we explore all the nuances and all the surprising subtleties within those ideas. And there are some really heart-wrenching times during the Civil Rights Movement where we wrestle with those and we wish that we would wrestle with them better. And there are other times where we embrace ideas so quickly, it's remarkable. The biotechnology push is moving so quickly that perhaps it's worth stopping and considering some more and wrestling some more. And so there's the good and the bad, and all of those things are present in our individual students. And watching those things happen within a society is illuminating and goes back to our schema of what is humanity. What are the details that are irrelevant between you and me? And what are the commonalities that define us as being a civilization of humans together on this planet? And those commonalities are disruptive. They they surprise me as a member of this population and they make me reconsider who I am in this population and that level of introspection is something that I think we seek in our students and they can only be achieved by considering schema at that broad level of detail. And now for something completely different. Our content references were related to our initial discussion, so we are ready to move into the non sequitur, which is our little mini debate of opinion. I'm, I'm modestly excited for this one. Imagine that you are an employer with two candidates for a position. Candidate number one is Seaborg. Seaborg is competent, but not extraordinary in reading, writing, arithmetic, but nothing else. So the basic core ideas. They can read, they can write, they've done some basic math, but they have no process skills, uh, preparation. So they are what somebody looks like with no training. Versus Mendeleev, who has technique experience. They've taken band, they've taken shop, they've taken drafting. They've done a lot of process experience um, class coursework, but have not taken any core or classes. No science, no math, no reading, no writing, none of that. So they are untrained in that regard. Who do you hire is the current question. Okay, so why are we associating these arguments with those particular people? 
I had to pick names. Why so. did you have to pick names? Why didn't you just say, what would an employer want? Someone with... Uh, candidate 1 and candidate 2 is too impersonal. And while you and I would be very So these are the that, names of the potential candidates? Yeah. Oh. I had no idea. Yeah, these are candidate names. I'm trying to human like humans human. You did a poor job of that. Well, that doesn't shock me. I have very little investment so, in that. How, so who is our target audience? I don't know. Okay, well, pick an age that you think represents the median. 35. Okay, then identify current year minus 35 most popular names. No. That, that's no. how no, you... No, no. Yep. Because Seymour and Mendeley, I didn't even know they were people. And like you should, which is the whole no, no, point no. Okay. of this podcast. I knew Mendeleev. I know who he is, and I know what he did from a scientific contribution perspective. Reinforcing the things that we already know. I thought is these ex- were philosophers that were purporting that one of these is more important. You than can't the other. both know who Mendeleev is and also think they're philosophers. Oh. Turns out, bro, <laughs> names are yeah. repeated. Turns yeah. out, names are repeated. <laughs> so, like, just because a chemist was named Mendeleev doesn't mean uh, an education philosopher wasn't or an economist wasn't. Sorry. Yeah, concede that point. Okay. Oh, man. So these were supposed to be people names. <laughs> they are people names. They are people they names. They are All right. people names. But they are not people names that are, like, pop culture current associative they should be well okay okay fine i don't know maybe people are naming themselves these are last names right yeah Hmm. i think doe and smith are better proposals for for hypotheticals the day the day the hour i accept that the state of popular knowledge dictates my own behaviors is the day I walk out into a forest and you never see me again. Uh, actually, I retract that. I, I retract... First of all, I ignored that statement entirely. I retract... <laughs> I retract Smith and Doe. Muhammad is the most common name on Earth. Uh-huh. So let's use Muhammad as one of them instead of Seaborg. If we want to use median names... Most represent- common most common female name. Yeah, yeah. Let's do that for the other one. Let's look it up. What's the most common female name? Oh, right, yeah. I don't know. I don't know either. James. James is the... No, Mary. Mary. Okay. The first thing I read, I was like, what? Seriously? Let's do that. Muhammad and Mary. Okay? These are the most common male and female names on the globe. Muhammad and Mary. Okay, so which one is Muhammad? Tell me about Muhammad. God. I'm uncomfortable. Why? Which is probably fine. You specifically said you wanted disequilibrium. I know. That's why I said it's probably fine. (sighs) Yielding to the masses makes me very uncomfortable. This argument is supposed to be about median employers. Why can't it be about most popular names? Median names. Muhammad and Mary. Because neither of these people are... Neither modes. Yes. Well done. Thank you. Neither neither of these people are anywhere near the normal curve. They are tail people. No, they're Yes, there are not people who are 100% reading writing arithmetic and no soft skills or the opposite. They are both 
tail individuals. Did you choose the names to reflect that quality? No. Then it's irrelevant. It isn't. It's now re- it's now relevant because that's now a consideration of the names. I thought it was going to be accepted out of hand. I actually thought that the names had some significance to the positions, and I was going to ask you about it so that you could inform me about the things that I didn't know. Nope. I just had to pick names, and if I'm going to pick names, I'm going to pick names that are interesting. That was where I was at. Seaborg came to mind, which then prompted, in my schema of chemist names, Mendeleev. I see. I find Mary and Muhammad interesting. I, to escape further conflict, I'll accept it, because there wasn't anything particularly special about those two names. We should just... Uh, the equity, the equitability of these two names makes me happy. Uh, a concession I was not aiming for. I understand. Which <laughs> makes me happier. <laughs> Very well. Uh, I'll, um, like seriously, that awesome. Okay, okay, okay. We we at this podcast reject Jane and Dick, and we reject Smith, and we will use Muhammad and Mary. That's what I propose as our standard go-to random name. In light of our last discussion, we will be saving this current non sequitur for another day. We argued vehemently and effectively for changing the random name propositions. They weren't random. They were not random. That's an entirely different non sequitur. I. It's not a non sequitur. That's a statistical consideration that has answers and falsities. My proposition was not random, but Mendeleev and Seaborg was random. No, they weren't random. Okay, what was the seed of decision that allowed you to make those two decisions? Impactful chemists of the last 300 years. You said, I'm going to use impactful chemists of the next I'm going to use interesting names, and I activated some names more likely than other names, thus not random. What determined your seed for activating interesting names? First thing, first name to activate absent any stimulus. Abs- action, absent, Absent stimulus, I propose, is random. You're wrong. You're wrong. Because we can only know things in the context of other things that we know. I am a scientist by training, so most of the things that I know are science things. I must concede that point. I don't know how you're going to edit that to make that productible, but you do it, bro. Do we agree that from now on, when we are talking about random individuals, we will use the names Mary and Muhammad? Uh, yeah, I accept that as procedure. Me too. I'm so at peace with this particular uh, consensus. So uh, <laughs> with that, I think we're done. Yeah, we did a thing. I didn't like any of that. Uh, what would you think of the beer? Uh, I love Dragon's Milk. I love it on a um, sensorial level. Like, when I drink it, here, I'm going to do that for you. It is... It is... Thick. It is milky. Its name, Dragon's Milk, suggests the the experience you're going to have when you drink this particular liquid. It is not a smooth drinking, clean ale. It is meaty and tough. And its APV of 11 gives you all of your money's worth. Uh, it is uh, not hoppy at all. Yeah, like zero. Zero. It is all of that malty richness goodness. This represents the extreme of my preference. I am not moderate when it comes to beer. I want malt. I hate hops. Period. The end. Bool. For those key 
Stephen King fans out there, that's the end of the conversation. Uh, Dragon's Milk for the win. Yeah, it's uh, the bourbon flavor from its aging process is tangible. It's present in every drink. Uh, it's strong, which tells you why this was a more free-flowing episode. We were more rambunctious than usual. Less content delivery. Yeah, absolutely. Which uh, I would argue is desirable. Uh, but uh, yet at the whole time, with all those characteristics, it never feels like you're drinking syrup. It's still a drinkable beer. It's not an Imperial. I, I don't know if it's listed as an Imperial, but it isn't. It's not. It's it's light enough that it can be drunk several at a time, and I'm ready for several more. It's identified as a milk stout, so lactose is the fermenture. So, uh, so I like it not only because it has all of those things, but I love me some whiskey, and that is that is um, detectable in the palate. It's light enough to have several, and as you mentioned, its APV uh, is impactful. Cheers. To Dragon's Milk. Thanks for tuning in. This has been excellent. Struggle well. And discuss research.